Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's a joke. Are you ready? Are you sitting down? Do you have some tissue handy in case you need it because of the tears that will roll down your face due to laughter? Okay. Why does Waldo always wear stripes? Because he doesn't want to be spotted. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from Judy Greer. That'll help break the ice. She's among the stars of the film Jurassic World, which comes out this week. Mm-hmm. Later, we'll speak with Paul Dano, who plays young beach boy Brian Wilson in the new biopic Love and Mercy. Also coming up, UK band Hot Chip. We chat with the director of the Sundance-winning documentary The Wolf Pack, and author Jackie Collins tells us what it's polite to steal from a dinner party. It's practical, but first, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. President Obama has ordered the deployment of up to 450 more U.S. troops to Iraq. Sir Christopher Lee has died at the age of 93. And the Tony Award goes to Fun Home. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Sadie Stein. She is a contributing editor at the Paris Review, which just launched its summer issue. Check it out. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I am going to talk about something I read about in the L.A. Times, the museum selfie. Oh, okay. I've seen that happen. Are are these in a positive way or a negative way? Well, depends how you look at it. It's a trend that cannot be stopped, so some museums are embracing it. They're making the most of it. They're setting up selfie opportunities and encouraging people to take them. This is like major museums? that You used to not even be able to take a photo in a museum, Exactly. And maybe some of these curators think, you know, if you can't beat them, at least control it. Because LACMA is doing it. The Hammer Museum has these spinning chairs. They encourage people to sit in and take selfies. Even the Pompidou Center had special little spots where they encouraged tourists to stand in front of Jeff Koons sculptures. And take selfies of themselves. With hashtags, exactly. Well, they also have crying rooms for people like me who's (laughs) Is whose soul is rendered every time he sees a selfie stick? <laughs> oh my god! What's going on? Why don't they just replace the paintings with mirrors? Let's be, let's also though remember that I mean artists have been doing versions of selfies forever. It's called a self-portrait. Yeah, artists. <laughs> Right? But, these guys, to... but if it's about narcissism, I went to a Rembrandt exhibit. That guy never stopped painting himself. I think as soon as Rembrandt takes a selfie, I will sign up <laughs> to to take yeah. my own selfie with it. Yeah. Hashtag Rembrandt has risen. In the meantime, uh, my selfie at a museum with people taking selfies will be Edward Monk's The Screen. All right. Uh, Sadie Stein, thanks very much for the small talk. Thank you for having me. And now, time to take a picture of ourselves drinking cocktails. <laughs> Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our famed history lesson with a twist of booze. First, that defies physics. First, the history around this time back in 1937, a Florida bar opened its doors and gave America its first taste of a classic sandwich. Possibly. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. There are as many stories about the origin of the Sloppy Joe sandwich as there are ways of dripping some on your clothes. the most popular tales begins in Havana, Cuba, where in the 1930s stood a bar called Sloppy Joe's, named after Jose, the owner, who wasn't exactly a neat freak. One of the regulars, Ernest Hemingway, yes, that one, who loved a sandwich Jose served, a variation on the Cuban dish Ropa Vieja, 
shredded beef simmered in tomato sauce. When Hemingway moved to Key West, Florida, he convinced his favorite bar there to rename itself Sloppy Joe's. They also started serving a Ropa Vieja-style loose meat sandwich and were the first to actually call it a Sloppy Joe. Cool story, right? But then, what to make of Town Hall Deli in South Orange, New Jersey? Back in the 30s, they started serving something called a Sloppy Joe, also supposedly based on the sandwich served at Sloppy Joe's in Havana. Except Town Hall's version isn't a loose meat sandwich at all, more like a cold, messy Reuben. So did the Havana Sloppy Joe serve both types of sandwich? Are both stories mere myths? And just to complicate things further, there was also a cafe in Sioux City, Iowa, which some food historians say actually invented Sloppy Joes in the 30s, when a chef named Joe added tomato sauce to ground beef. Anyway, if we ever figure out the true origin of the sandwich, there'll still be mysteries to solve. Like why sloppy joes in various parts of the country are also called slush burgers, dynamites, steamers, wimpies, yip yips, or yum yums. So that was the history. Now for a drink to serve with it. I'm on the line with Jim Cole. He's a bartender at Sloppy Joe's Bar in Key West, Florida. One of the joints with a claim to having named and introduced the Sloppy Joe to America. Jim, what drink did that tale inspire? And I hope there's not loose meat in it. Well, no loose meat in the drink, I promise. Thank you. But I am going to uh, regale you with the signature Sloppy Rita. Um, of course, being in Key West, it's the town that inspired Margaritaville, and so it's a sloppy Rita. What makes it a sloppy Rita? Do you just spill it out onto <laughs> the tabletop? Every chance we get, everything here is a, a little bit sloppy. Just spill it and pour some salt on top of it, lick it up. Yes. <laughs> no, what's in this thing? Well, we start with the uh, Salsa Blue, 100% Blue Agave uh, Tequila. We use an ounce of that. All right. Uh, and then a half an ounce of Grand Gala, which is uh, orange liqueur mixed with BSOP brandy, a lot like a Grand Marnier. All right. Give it just a splash of orange juice to sweeten it up just a touch. Fill it with sour mix. Shake as you salt the cup. And you have a sloppy Rita. All right. But, you know, margaritas and Key West and the beach lifestyle, it doesn't seem to really go with the Sloppy Joe, which I think of as this hearty, in-your-face, almost wintertime food. Does it really go with the surroundings? Well, this was Hemingway's favorite haunt oh, yeah, uh, sure. during his years here in Key West. And Hemingway is pretty much an in-your-face type of guy. Yeah, you have a few Sloppy so. Ritas and then start a brawl or a bullfight. <laughs> Jim Cole of Sloppy Joe's Bar in Key West, Florida. And Brendan, Jim says a margarita actually pairs well with a Sloppy Joe because the tartness (laughs) cuts through the sweetness of the sandwich. All right. That would would work. Also, I was thinking a Sloppy Joe's a good lunch for the beach because it's got to be at least SPF 30. (laughs) That's that's right. Spill it all over yourself. Go right That's ahead. right. UV rays will not get through that. No way. Uh, folks, our website spills over with cocktail recipes. Nice. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, and now this party needs some music. Yes, and here with suggestions is Alexis Taylor, frontman of the UK band Hot Chip. They just released a new album called Why Make Sense? And it's filled with the sort of sexy, smart dance music that earned them nominations for a Grammy Award and the Mercury Prize. Here's Alexis with the playlist.
Hey, I'm Alexis from the band Hot Chip, and this is my dinner party soundtrack. I thought it's good to start with Jonah Louie, always in the kitchen at parties. It's a fantastic early 80s synth pop novelty song that I used to listen to on the record player at my dad's house. He seemed to be drawn towards pop songs with a nice kind of narrative to them. Me and my girlfriend, we argued and she ran away from home. She must have found somebody new and now I'm all alone, living on my own. It's about somebody who's not very good at socialising. And I can relate to that myself. But I also feel like I, I'd get away from the kitchen quite quickly because I'm not a great cook. Um, and I'd want to be on the dance floor. If there is one or if there isn't, I'll make one exist. Next on the dinner party soundtrack would be Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, Wake Up Everybody, which is a very serious but easy on the ear 70s record. It's asking for people to look after those around them and to help one by one to make the world a better place. Wake up everybody, no more sleeping in bed. No more back thinking, time for thinking ahead. The world has changed so very much. Teddy Pendergrass in one of his best vocal performances. I think he has the right amount of texture and almost gravel to his voice mixed with a smoothness. I had originally heard the reggae singer and producer Big Youth performing a cover version of the same track. And then my brother bought the original for me as a present a few years ago, and it turned out to be an inspiration to us. At this point, people will be really embracing each other on the dance floor in a slightly drunken and gingerly way, but this will, this will make people feel at ease. So the next song I would put on the uh, soundtrack would be Keith Rowe, Groovy Situation which is a wonderful reggae song, something I've had on 7-inch single for years and years, and it's survived being dropped on the floor and trodden on, and it's been cleaned up and played again. It's a crackly copy I have, but it's one of my favourite pieces of music. Something's happened to me It's a dinner party, it shouldn't all be about dancing. We haven't really mentioned anyone making food, so Rob from Hot Chip might be taking care of desserts, raspberry or sherry trifle, perhaps. Trifle was recently added to our rider, actually, after asking all of the band and crew if there's anything that they would like particularly to be added to the rider, and Rob's response was trifle, question mark. So that's now something that we'll be either forced to look at or eat every day of our touring lives. Oh, yeah. 
I guess usually if we play any of our own music at a party, it would be because it's a new song that we're excited about sharing with people. And for the new album, I would probably pick Easy to Get. I think there's a misunderstanding sometimes of Hot Chip. Some people don't like it because they think it's full of sarcasm or irony or things that people question and second guess. And actually, for me, it's emotionally open and deliberately easy to get. It's possible to make music that's like that and that's quite playful as well. Easy to get. dinner party soundtrack from Alexis Taylor of the band Hot Chip. They start a U.S. tour in July. Their new album is called Why Make Sense. I've been asking myself that for ages. It's true. All right, coming up, actor Paul Dano expresses his regrets. Oh, why did I say that? He's had a few. (laughs) Plus, Jackie Collins and more when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, actor Alex Karpovsky reads from writer Edgar Carrot's new memoir. Actor Paul Dano talks about portraying Brian Wilson. And in a few minutes, I find out if a red velvet cheesecake eclair is okay. I'm pretty sure it's okay, man. We'll find Perfect out. Perfect, in fact. Uh, first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson, though. Yes, each week you send in questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is one of our favorites, Jackie Collins. Yes. She's the author of 30 New York Times bestselling novels. More than 500 million of her books have been sold. Ugh. Her latest is called The Santangelos, and it is the conclusion to her Santangelo series, 10 books that follow the Santangelo crime family from the 20s to the present. Lucky Santangelo is the female hero of the series. And this edition features drug kingpins, rich royalty from the Middle East, and, of course, gorgeous models. Ah, uh, yes. Jackie. We always well, have to have gorgeous <laughs> models. I put them in just for you two. Oh, thanks. Thank, I, we, we appreciate it. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you. It's good to be here. Last time we were on stage, which was fun. Yes, you were a part of our live show yeah, in L.A. that live show is great. Where you were also offering etiquette advice. We ruined some marriages and inspired some marriages <laughs> That's that right. night. I think I inspire women. I mean, I was thinking lately, and I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but whatever happened to fall? play. <laughs> well, well, let's I mean, just start the conversation yeah, that way. Let's get right into it. You know, if you look at uh, if you look at television, the movies now, there's this mm. absolute scene that goes on. These two people look at each other. There's a wild look in both their eyes, and mm. she rips his shirt off. And that's it. And then they're on the bed doing it. And well, I'm like, what the hell happened here? Uh, that's, uh, I don't know. I don't know what happened to America. And I will say it's expensive um, on the shirts. Like, you know, keeping having to replace shirts, yeah. get the buttons redarmed. But and... usually the guy takes the girl's shirt off. Now the girl is so busy ripping off his shirt. Is it because they've suddenly got all these abs? Perhaps he's hungry for the abs. Well, your, your books talk about um, foreplay and what happens after foreplay. But another thing you're known for uh, is writing about... the lifestyles of the rich and the infamous. You've been covering this for years. How do today's rich differ from the ones you wrote about years ago? Oh, well, I think they're all doing the wrong thing. Mm. They're all Mm. so greedy. And um, I just wait every day to see who's going to be the new sex scandal. Wait a minute now. There weren't sex scandals? Well, there were, but they were kind of like, you know, relegated to uh, Errol Flynn chasing 14-year-old girls. (laughs) I think I was one of them. My gosh. Yes. 
Yeah. Is that true? It is true. He was chasing me. It'll really? be in my autobiography, which I'm still writing. I know I, I tell know. you about it every time, but I'm just up to where I'm like a crazy 15-year-old. So much happened. Yeah. Actually, I mean, something that's interesting to me, I was reading an interview with you, and it, was, yeah. it said that you consider yourself not that social a person, more of a wallflower. That yeah. surprises me. No, not me. a wallflower. What the a wallflower, excuse my French. Um, not a wallflower. A She's an observer. anthropologist who crawls yes. along the walls of Hollywood watching what the 1% do. No, do you know what a wallflower is? Well, somebody who can't get uh, Is that what it is? <laughs> I just thought of somebody who's like scared to get on the dance floor. Oh, well, I my husband owned discotheques for years. So you were not mm. afraid. I would watch these people who were on the dance floor, and then I became very afraid because you've never seen people make such fools of themselves <laughs> in your lives. Um, speaking of people making fools of themselves, why, yes. don't, why don't we read you some of our listeners' etiquette okay. questions? Okay, I want to hear them. All right. This question comes from Stan in Milwaukee. Stan writes, Is it proper to ask the host of the previous evening's party if they happen to find your undergarments? Happens oh. all the time. Well, it happens all the time, and you just mm. have to buy new ones. <laughs> you don't know what kind of a party you were at. I mean, they could give you somebody else's. Yeah, that's true. You could get J-Lo's thong. You never know what you're going to get. Yeah, I think you're right. I think even if you're the host and you find undergarments, you just throw them away. If you lost your undergarments, just consider them gone. And move on. Thank you. All right, here's one from Kathy in Brooklyn. Kathy writes... Jackie Collins, you're at a dinner in your honor. Yeah. Someone passes by you and accidentally spills their wine on your stunning dress just as you're about to go on stage to make a speech. Your dress is ruined. What do you do? Well, now, if it's a woman that spilled it on me, I change dresses with her instantly. Uh, If she's got a decent dress on. If it's Mm -hmm. a guy, I say, give me your jacket. And I put the jacket on and, uh, you know, the show must go on. And people, and of course, they've just wronged you. So, of course, they'll do anything they can. Exactly. Do you change the dress publicly or do you retire to... You retire to the ladies' room. Okay. Yeah. What do you think? I'm going to do a striptease in the middle of everybody? I I don't know, Jackie. I'm reading your book here. It's in front of me. That doesn't (laughs) seem like it's something that's never crossed your mind. (laughs) That's Willow Price, my favorite new character. It is Willow Price. Can I quickly ask, what is the name Willow Price? Where did where do these names come from? I don't know. I really, they just come to me. You know, I thought Willow Price, it, it kind of summed her up. You know, a she's a Willow. Actress. She's a bad yeah. girl actress who got a million DUIs. And uh, <laughs> she's not based on anybody, I promise. But she's based on a bunch of them. And uh, she's my favorite new character because she's so ambitious. And yet you can see that she's really just a poor little girl trying to make it in the movie business. Oh, so Willow, you know, she's brittle and yet it's a tree. Exactly. At the same time. Yes. And all the guys want to climb this tree. Okay. Okay. All right. We covered that. Next question comes from Brendan, not me, but Brendan in Ireland. Ah. And Brendan writes, I was in college in Dublin doing post-grad work. One of our friends invited us over for dinner. I asked if I could bring my friend. A great night was had. So great, I can't remember specifics. Nice. Next evening, I visited that same friend who proudly showed me the host's microwave oven, which he somehow took leaving the party. (laughs) To my internal shame, I condone this theft by my silence. What course of action should I have taken? Listen to these listeners. They're losing their undergarments. The parties, they're stealing. Stole a microwave? If you're going to steal something... I wouldn't steal a microwave <laughs> oven. I mean, i steal a, a signed Jackie Collins book, maybe. Yeah, sure. Something uh, of value. A bottle of scotch. Or, or Stan's undergarments. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think he should have 
told the host. I think he should have said, hey, by the way, we've got your microwave. Yeah, how, but they, probably the host would be glad to get rid of that thing. My guess is well, they God bought it in the what, 80s. Yeah, God knows what went on in that microwave. <laughs> That's true. Yes. They're never clean yeah. anyway. They're no. probably happy to be rid of it. No, exactly. And if they're not, just bring it back, right? So yeah. basically, Brendan should have felt eternal shame. <laughs> All right. I think this is a good yeah. place to stop. Yeah. Jackie Collins, thank you so much for once again, I think, telling our audience how to behave. And thank you, guys. Jackie Collins, her latest book is called The Santangelos, and this week it will be available everywhere. Yep. Truly, if you look behind you, it will probably be for sale right there. Her <laughs> work is omnipresent. And folks, it is. if you have questions about sex scenes, thievery, or whatever, send them to us. We won't judge. Nope. But we will find someone who will. You can reach us at dinnerpartydownload.org. Time to eavesdrop. Author Edgar Carrot is a modern master of the short story. His witty, often surreal pieces tinged with melancholy have earned him international acclaim. Today we overhear actor Alex Karpovsky reading chapter one of Carrot's new memoir, The Seven Good Years. It takes place in his home country of Israel. I just hate terrorist attacks, the thin nurse says to the older one. Want some gum? The older nurse takes a piece and nods. What can you do, she says. I also hate emergencies. It's not the emergencies, the thin one insists. I have no problem with accidents and things. It's the terrorist attacks. I'm telling you, they put a damper on everything. Sitting on the bench outside the maternity ward, I think to myself, she's got a point. I got here just an hour ago, all excited with my wife and a neat freak taxi driver who, when my wife's water broke, was afraid it would ruin his upholstery. And now I'm sitting in the hallway, feeling glum, waiting for the staff to come back from the ER. Everyone but the two nurses has gone to help treat the people injured in the attack. My wife's contractions have slowed down too. Probably even the baby feels this whole getting born thing isn't that urgent anymore. As I'm on my way to the cafeteria, a few of the injured roll past on squeaking gurneys. In the taxi on the way to the hospital, my wife was screaming like a madwoman, but all these people are quiet. Are you Edgar Carrot? A guy wearing a check shirt asks me. The writer? I nod reluctantly. Well, what do you know? He says, pulling a tiny tape recorder out of his bag. Where were you when it happened? When I hesitate for a second, he says in a show of empathy, take your time, don't feel pressured, you've been through a trauma. I wasn't in the attack, I explain. I just happen to be here today. My wife's giving birth. Oh, he says, not trying to hide his disappointment, and presses the stop button on his tape recorder. Mazel tov. Now he sits down next to me and lights himself a cigarette. We sit there a minute without talking. He's about ten years younger than I am, but starting to go bald. When he catches me looking at him, he smiles and says, Too bad you weren't there. A reaction from a writer would have been good for my article. Someone original, someone with a little vision. After every attack, I always get the same reactions. Suddenly I heard a boom. I don't know what happened. Everything was covered in blood. How much of that can you take? It's not their fault, I say. It's just that the attacks are always the same. What kind of original thing can you say about an explosion and senseless death? Beats me, he says with a shrug. You're the writer. Some people in white jackets are starting to come back from the ER on their way to the maternity ward. You're from Tel Aviv, the reporter says to me. So why'd you come all the way to this dump to give birth? We wanted a natural birth, 
Their department here. Natural, he interrupts, sniggering. What's natural about a baby with a cable hanging from his belly button popping out of your wife's vagina? I told my wife, if you ever give birth only by cesarean section, like in America. Nowadays, it's only in primitive countries like this that women give birth like animals. Ah, I'm going to work. Starting to get up, he tries one more time. Maybe you have something to say about the attack anyway. Did it change anything for you? Like what you're going to name the baby or something? I don't know. I smile apologetically. Never mind, he says with a wink. I hope it goes easy, man. <laughs> Six hours later, the baby comes popping out of my wife's vagina and immediately starts to cry. I try to calm him down, to convince him that there's nothing to worry about. That by the time he grows up, everything here in the Middle East will be settled. Peace will come. There won't be any more terrorist attacks. And even if once in a blue moon there is one, there will always be someone original, someone with little vision around to describe it perfectly. He quiets down and then considers his next move. He's supposed to be naive, seeing as how he's a newborn. But even he doesn't buy it. And after a second's hesitation and a small hiccup, he goes back to crying. Alex Karpovsky, reading from the audiobook of Edgar Carrot's memoir, The Seven Good Years, comes out on Penguin Audio this week. We added the production and edited the piece for time. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So Rico, pop quiz, right. canale, macaron, kinamon, what do they all have in common? Uh, their words, French people get angry at us for misspelling. That is right. Yay. Well done. <laughs> and they're all pastries that have become trendy in the past few years as American food fans explored the world of tasty baked things. All right. Like you. Like me. But meanwhile, the eclair, the original trendy French pastry, has been overlooked until now. Mm. Nico Triantafilo covers desserts for the blog Serious Eats, and recently he wrote a story about the eclair renaissance. When we met... I first asked him what eclair means. It's the French word for, for flash of lightning. Um, so, really? Yep. Why is it named after a flash of lightning? Um, no one knows. The sort of encyclopedia of French cooking, uh, Russe Gastronomique, doesn't really have a good explanation. Um, mm. I haven't ever found one. Well, that's a pretty cool name and an exciting name for a pastry that, until recently, hasn't been very exciting. It's interesting. On the one hand, it's one of the most popular French pastries in America, but among foodies, it's kind of fallen off. So can you tell me the story of the eclair in the United States, yeah, as, that, as far as you a, know it? The eclairs have been available in the United States um, for many years, at least 30 years by my recollection, growing up in New York City in the 70s. You could even get them frozen in supermarkets or, across the U.S. And yet, during this kind of recent food renaissance people kind of overlooked the eclair. Yeah, the eclair was just a little too basic. I mean, yeah. it was basically, you know, <laughs> just had this custard inside and chocolate on top. And I think the biggest reason for the eclair getting popular again is the proliferation of French bakeries in New York City. And I'm mm. not talking just about any French bakeries. I'm talking about the best French bakeries, Epicie Belloud, Payard, Maison Kaiser. They've all opened three, four, five additional patisseries mm. in the last two years alone. So now there's competition and so they need to find a competitive advantage. Absolutely. It's driven innovation. It's not unlike yeah. a lot of other fields outside pastry. So you're starting to see, you know, people say, boy, what are they doing in Paris? Just like the macaron five to ten years ago 
we were just behind Paris, and the same exact thing is happening with eclairs. And so there's a pastry arms race happening. <laughs> and people, uh, I guess, they've run out of exotic pastries, and so they've looked to the eclair, and they've been fancying them up a little bit. Yeah. I mean, one thing is that the eclair is a familiar container of which they can deliver new pastry ideas. Almost everyone, most consumers in New York know about an eclair. Mm. And so it's a great vehicle to say, you know, I'm going to try this new pastry cream, or I'm going to try torching some uh, meringue on top like they did at Lafayette. Yeah. So it's a really a great canvas to deliver, you know, something that's a little bit experimental, yeah. but then the consumer's not scared of it. It's familiar. Well, look, we're looking at some eclairs right now. Yeah, these are beautiful. Uh, I stopped by Epicerie Belou, uh, which is, you write about in the article, and I just got a chocolate eclair and a caramel eclair, nothing too exotic. And then I also stopped by the Eclair Bakery, and these eclairs look like beautiful boats from Magical Candyland. There's a blueberry eclair with blueberries on top. There's a red velvet eclair, which has chunks of cake on top. Um, I have a question. Are the French okay with this? <laughs> I, like, I know there's a French chef at actually the Eclair Bakery. It seems like they're so uptight about some things, and yet in this kind of new world of French pastry being popular, they're, you know, they're like, go ahead, put, put bacon in it. We don't care. Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Uh, bacon might be a line that they would <laughs> want us to cross. But in terms of the French being okay with it, one of the most influential French pastry chef, Christophe Adam, mm. he's got eclair-only pastry shops in Paris. And he's got at least three of them. And they wow. only sell eclairs. Okay. And there's absolutely no rules. Everything uh, is on the table. So, for example, on one of his eclairs, he's got a piece of white chocolate on top, and he's got a photograph imprinted into the chocolate that you can eat of the Mona Lisa. It sounds like Paris beat us to the punch by making these crassly commercial. <laughs> you know, I, there's maybe, maybe we could have like a uh, Jennifer Lawrence eclair <laughs> or Scarlett Johansson eclair. I would, I would be shocked if that's not in the works. And so, tell me, what type of pastry is this? So, eclairs are made with pâte choux. Um, which is just four ingredients, butter, water, flour, and eggs. Okay. And the way they rise is the steam that's generated uh, from the moisture content. So there's no mm. yeast, there's no leavening like with bread. And that's okay. true for every single eclair. It's not an eclair if it's not using uh, pâte choux pastry. So what makes an eclair is that pastry tube filled with some sort of cream and then topped with some sort of topping. Is that's that as, it. That's it's it. as simple as that. Yep. All right, let's let's eat some of these. Do any of these catch your eye? What, what, what are you interested in? You know, this one's got a red velvet uh, chunks. It's also got the cracklin topping, and it's also got a pastry cream. I'm not sure what, what that is on top, so I feel like maybe we should try that. Uh, right. You try that, and I'm going to try this classic caramel one right here. Mmm. Mm-hmm. So it is really just a delivery system for the wonderful caramel cream here. Yes. And this one's got some type of um, cheesecake filling. What makes this different than a, is a Twinkie a distant cousin of uh, the eclair? Wow, that is, you know, I never thought of that, but obviously it's the same shape. Um, you know, I think a Twinkie has a bit more of a shelf life. Mm. <laughs> a, good, a good eclair, um, you know, you really wouldn't want to eat one that's more than maybe six hours old. Mm. You know, a Twinkie, I think you couldn't tell the difference between a, you know. Well, I don't, I think you need, it actually needs to sit for six years before it really <laughs> gets peak. That's peak Twinkie. <laughs> Nico Triantafilu, he writes for the food blog Serious Eats. Head to our website to see pictures of the eclairs he and Brendan sampled before they met their fate. <laughs> That's right. Poor things. And Rico, you know, as the cronut taught us, once a pastry gets popular, yeah. it's just a matter of time before some chef merges it with another pastry. Oh, any day now. But 
In the case of the eclair, Dunkin' Donuts merged it with the donut years ago, hmm. so I think we're safe from the scourge of the eclair nut. Um, you know, I, I still think there's room for the pie eclair nut. I hope, I hope you're wrong. <laughs> All right, <laughs> we'll agree to disagree. People stick around after the break. Actor Paul Dano talks about portraying Beach Boy Brian Wilson when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll speak with Crystal Moselle, director of the documentary The Wolf Pack, which won a grand jury prize at Sundance earlier this year. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. All right. And this week, I welcomed actor Paul Dano back to the program. He is best known for his gripping character roles in films like Little Miss Sunshine, in which he played the mute older brother. He was the scheming young preacher in There Will Be Blood. And he was a brutal slave overseer in 12 Years a Slave. But his latest is a starring role in the biopic Love and Mercy. Dano plays young Brian Wilson, the songwriting genius behind the Beach Boys, who crafts some of the greatest pop music ever, even as he falls into mental illness. In this clip, he's working in the studio on the groundbreaking album Pet Sounds. Remember, it's the uh, 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 higher octave on the upbeats in the bridge. Hey, Brian. I love that. Brian. Yeah. I think you might have screwed up here. Really? Let me see. Well, you've got Lyle playing in D, and the rest of us are in A major. Yeah, that's right. How does that work? Two bass lines in two different keys? Well, it works in my head. When we met, I first asked Dano if he was a Beach Boys fan. I've had like a few different phases of Beach Boys. The first phase being after Disney songs on a car ride to school. I think you, you get the early Beach Boys and the early Beatles. That's true. I think a lot of kids get that, you know, the surf in the USA and, and, and that stuff. And then in high school, when I started to play a little bit of music and really, you know, got into music, Pet Sounds was an album that it seemed like real musicians were like, pet sounds, you know, pet mm-hmm. sounds. And I remember not being sure about that. I mean, really, okay, pet, pet sounds. Yeah, it's like the Beach Boys, really? And I did love it, but I didn't know Brian's story. You know, I think I knew a bit of it. I knew that Smile was an album that didn't get finished. I knew he was a troubled guy. But I think my favorite thing about coming across this script was seeing that a guy who, who made music that made so many people smile, you know, there's so much light in the music, had so much struggle and pain in, the, in his real life, and, and I didn't know that. Well, uh, that, that kind of leads nicely to my next question, which is you read that script, you get offered the role. What scares you about it? It seems like a very scary role to take on. Yeah, I think everything scared me. <laughs> What's funny about it was I never thought I would play Brian Wilson. I never saw a resentment. You know, nobody had ever said that to me. No, you know, mm-hmm. so every now and then sometimes you get, oh, you should you should play like this person someday or this person. You know, Brian, it just never crossed my mind. And knowing there are so many people out there who revere him or idolize him or, or who feel like they've been given a gift by him. That's actually probably the the biggest challenge you face is trying to live up to something or somebody else's idea. I'm going to fail America by messing this up. Yeah, and and then also the trickiest thing is it was certainly not a performance I wanted to approach from a place of mimicry. Brian is such um, an honest and sort of special spirit. I felt it was more important to really get inside whatever that spirit means or heart that is what makes his music, and that is something that is ineffable. You sort of have to chase it around and hopefully discover it. Yeah, 
you know, trying to figure out what your motivation would be as an actor would be very hard because it is, seriously, you're playing somebody who is touched by genius. He just hears voices in his head, literally, yeah. and music in his head and just lays it down. It's like magic. How do you portray him as a mortal human being? The way I sort of looked at it was that Brian, I just don't think he ever built up like the extra layer of skin a lot of us do to become adults and, and sort of face the world. Some people say he seemed like he, has a, he was a bit childlike or had innocence. And I think that openness is what allowed him to access music that was bigger than himself, really. But it makes the highs higher and the lows lower when you're that open. And, and I think mm. that's part of his genius as a musician. I think it's also what made the world a hard place. Yeah, That's interesting. Like you open yourself up to the good stuff, and that means that the punishing stuff is going to hit you all the harder. Yeah. What does he think of the film? Has he seen it? Yeah, he. I think he really likes it. Brian is, what he's thinking and feeling is what he's going to say. He's a pretty unfiltered guy. So it, it was scary to, to see the movie <laughs> sitting near him. Um, also because... Wait, is he the sort of person that would just burst out in the middle of it and be like, this is crap, and just I, leave? I don't think he would say this is crap. I think he would get up and leave, possibly, possibly. Wow. Yeah, you know, um, I think it would be hard for him to watch. You know, like, I mean, there's tough stuff in there. You know, it's revisiting... Not, I don't want to use the word trauma, but, you know, if, if for anybody, I right, a car word. accident, if you've been in a car accident, maybe watching a car accident might be hard. Yeah. But the first time I saw the film with him afterwards, we got out of the screening room and he went, well, that's a really good movie. You know, just like <laughs> totally sort of put it out there. And I was like, all right. And he repeated it a couple of times. Um, you play and sing as Brian Wilson in several scenes. You're you are a musician. You're in a band called Mook. What did you have to change, though? to get Brian Wilson, or what did you maybe relearn? Yeah, um, well, I, I played the guitar a little bit, but I, uh, so I learned some songs on the piano, which was super fun, because, uh, well, I mean, some, some of them are hard, but the voicings are so beautiful, and if that's my homework, you know, <laughs> to sit down and try to learn the chords to surf's up, I can't imagine having a more fun research process. And that's what I would do every day before work, going to set. I would wake up, I'd sit down at the piano, I'd play a song, and that's the thing that brought me closest to Brian. Did you find like there was, there was something technical that happens in those songs that you hadn't noticed before that maybe helps explain? I once asked, I think it was Lamont Dozier was on our, our show, who wrote a lot of great Motown songs, mm. and I asked him if there's a you know, some sort of magical, mystical chord change that just always results in a hit or something. Well, the early songs definitely, you know, they they had like a thing. But I'd say Pet Sounds, man, is still revealing itself to me. Like, I mean, one interesting thing about his piano playing is he, he played bass in the Beach Boys early on. I mean, he wrote on the piano, but he'd play bass live. And his left hand work on the piano is really impressive. Like the bass lines in the left hand, he's doing really cool stuff. My, what's amazing is the songs go down so smooth. Yeah. in your ear but you don't realize what he's doing you know in terms of a chord change or a bass clarinet or a timpani or a whatever yeah, there's everything but the kitchen sink in these songs but they don't sound like a cacophony really. exactly and that's kind of a the peak of art that you could do something that nobody's done before but it just goes right down it tastes like candy yeah, yeah. I know Thank you. 
We have two questions that we ask everyone on the show. Mm. The first is, if we we're to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? Oh, I can tell you what you said last time. Oh, really? I'd changed. be curious. You said that you didn't like being asked what led you to become an actor, and you hated it because really? you, you didn't know. That's so interesting. Do you know now? Um, what I realized actually doing this film was that I think I got act into acting because of singing, because I think singing in school led to doing school plays and musicals, which led to me doing musicals and plays in New York theater. Um, don't ask me at a dinner party. <laughs> uh, I guess, you know, like, don't ask me about the weather. You know, let's, <laughs> and, let's, let's, let's real talk. See, I live in LA, so we don't, we just yeah, right. take that as a given. It's going to be sunny and not raining again. <laughs> uh, our second question is kind of the flip of that. Tell us something we don't know. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Okay. Last time around, you told us you had a bacon fetish. Oh, why did I say that? <laughs> um, it's true. It's too late. It's out there. It's true. I'm proud of that. Um, I have, if you're stumped, I have something I could bring up, but I'm, yeah, and you can tell up. me bring not it up. to. Bring it up. I have it on good authority. Interestingly, for somebody who plays a lot of intense and edgy roles, that you are a fish fan. Oh, that is true. Fish the Jam Band, P-H-I-S-H. You know what's funny about that is, so I live uh, I, I live in Brooklyn, and, you know, I think just, like, being an actor in certain, like, films that are hip, you know, I've gotten asked before in these kind of interviews, like, so are you a hipster? And I've always thought, well, if I tell them that I like fish, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that's, like, the least hipster thing. Paul Dano, he plays a young Brian Wilson in the film Love and Mercy. The film is in theaters now. And Brendan, I confess, I picked this fish song to go out on because I actually do kind of like it. You know your microphone's on, right? I am well aware. <laughs> it's a fine song. We probably just lost our entire Brooklyn audience because he said that. But, you know, whatever. We gained a thousand fans in Vermont. All right. Folks, you can hear our previous interview with Paul, including the part about bacon, at dinnerpartydownload.org. Six boys with Sanskrit names and waist-length hair live with their parents and sister in the projects in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. They range in age from 16 to 24, have been homeschooled, and, with the exception of the occasional excursions supervised by their father, are forbidden to leave their apartment. To occupy themselves, they start watching films, and they become obsessed with films, and they start reenacting the films they love. One day, one of the brothers escapes. It sounds like the plot of a psychological thriller, but it's a real-life story captured in the new documentary The Wolf Pack, directed by Crystal Moselle. It won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance this year, and it gets released in theaters this weekend. Crystal, welcome. I think anyone who watches this film will want to know, how did you get to know the Angulo brothers? I was their first friend. Um, I was walking down First Avenue, and they ran past me on the street, and they had this long hair and sunglasses all wearing black. And something about them just really intrigued me. Mm. And I just instinctually ran after them. And we learn they've been brought up in isolation. They've been taught to fear strangers. And although that wall from the world started to crumble at some point, they still had a lot of fear inside. How were you able to win their trust? We had this common interest. That's movies. Cinema, movies. Yeah. And so that's really what the friendship was based on. You know, when I first met them, I didn't have any idea what their backstory was. I was just really interested in them as people. Why did their father, Oscar, keep them inside? I think that initially he wanted to have control of his family. He kind of like had these ideas of starting his own community. And 
having his children be a part of that. I think it's safe to say he has a messiah complex. Yeah. And he wanted the power of, of a god in that house. He controlled everything that came in and out of that household. How did he succeed in doing that in modern New York? Through manipulation and mind control. I understand maybe how he would have power over the kids, but what were there oh. social workers or oh, how did, how did so, the, how did the no, system lose I mean, track of these the guys? They were they were legally homeschooled. Mm-hmm. They lived in the projects, so mm-hmm. there was contact, you know, to the mm-hmm. outside world. It was just they weren't venturing out. And watching the movie, they they seem so sweet. And so open. And it seems like once you won their trust, they let you into their world and talked in a way that kids between the age of 16 and 20 normally wouldn't talk. And one can't help but think that's partially because they were kept separate from the typical kind of... Oh, absolutely. uh, In what other ways did their isolation affect their personalities? Yeah, I mean, they're like... Their interests were pretty sophisticated. Narayana can... He's one of the brothers. Yeah. The way he speaks about cinema and like Terrence Malick and... It felt like I was talking to a, a peer mm-hmm. and somebody who had been in the film world for like 25 years. Mm-hmm. And here there's these children. Yeah. <laughs> and but, you know, it was very that's the thing that was like it is very it was very focused on cinema. At one point, one of them says that he felt like he was forced to think more because he was living in his mind because he was living in this apartment instead of in the world. Yeah. So their father wouldn't let them go out in the real world. But he allowed them to watch whatever they wanted. And then they start living through these films. What what did movies provide for them, in your opinion? I think the movies were a way of escaping. And I think that they were able to live through these characters and experience being empowered. Yeah. When there's like this sense of control being taken away from you, mm-hmm. they were able to feel that control within these characters. Let's say like a Reservoir Dogs character. Or the Dark Knight. Yeah. You know, he, he yeah, says, yeah. He's able to act out these emotions through this character. Yeah. And I think that eventually that's what empowered him to walk out that door. After I saw the Dark Knight, that made me believe that something was possible to happen. Not because it was Batman. It's because it felt like another world. I did everything I could to make that world come true. To escape my world. And eventually, Makunda, one of the brothers, does walk out the door. And it's the first break in this sort of wall that the father created. And eventually... All the boys end up getting out. Tell us how that played out in the family. So when McQuinda walked out that door, he was wearing a mask from the movie Halloween. Because he didn't want people to see him. He thought he'd he'd be able to disguise himself. Yeah, but it's an all-encompassing mask. You you show it in the film. It's not just like a Halloween mask. It goes over his head. Yeah, it's frightening. It's really creepy serial killer (laughs) style. Yeah, and so he got picked up by By the the authorities and... He ended up at Bellevue just for, like, an evaluation. Mm-hmm. And after that, things really started to change in the household. I think their father realized that, you know, it was time for them to actually, like, start going out on their own. Mm-hmm. And they basically band together and created their own pact within the house, mm-hmm. which kind of took down <laughs> the father the patriarch the, took down the alpha male yeah. the current alpha male and they started going out yeah. they just didn't ask and the first they say the first day that they all went out together as a group 
was the day they met me. What about that part of this process? You were not only a filmmaker, but you were their friend, as you say. And for a while there, you were, I imagine you were kind of teaching them about the outside world. You were like a liaison. How did you balance those roles? I think that that's the nature of being a documentary filmmaker. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, how do you draw those lines? And I think that, you know, I don't think I drew any lines and maybe that's not the right thing to do but (laughs) that's what I did but I think that that's just how the story had to be told and I think that's how there's a trust because you know we had like an actual real friendship between us before it was really like decided to do this film. The father who you ultimately interview in the movie it, it seemed like absent all of his mental problems He was going for something special. Like, he wanted to be a musician. At one point, we learned that he wanted the guys to be in a band. You almost think about the Jackson 5. No, their dad's cool. Like, I mean, it's he dresses cool. He has cool ideas. He understands what's hip. But, like, his actions didn't match up to that. Well, well, that's that's what I was going to say. You intimate that he was abusive. He was a drinker. In a way, making this movie, did you ever wonder, like, are you validating his choices by creating this special thing, right? By showing, the, by these, bringing these kids around the world. Yeah, I mean, his, it's this crazy thing because his intentions for his kids are almost coming true. I mean, maybe not exactly how he saw it, but mm. yeah. It's... Yeah, but it leaves the viewer feeling a little morally <laughs> uncomfortable just because... Uh, it seemed like it was a pretty ugly process to have them arrive where they arrived, but yeah. you are, you're just in all of these boys. And, yeah. And what I mean, that's doing. the thing is like, at least at this point, it's positive and mm. they're learning what happiness is. Yeah. Crystal Moselle, her new documentary, The Wolf Pack, opens this weekend in limited release. You can check out the preview at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And folks, that's the dinner party download for this week. But don't despair. At our website, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter in which you'll find drink recipes and updates on what's going on behind the scenes of our show. Speaking of, we're on Instagram and Twitter at Dinner Party DNLD. And we're, of course, a podcast on iTunes. If you have a moment, find us there and leave a comment. It helps us stay strong. And who are us? We are as follows. Jackson Musker, our producer. Our associate producer, Nina Patak. Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Engineering assistance this week came from Garrett Lang and Charlton Thorpe. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Till next time, bon appetit.